This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, not ourselves that much. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, California has billions of dollars in federal infrastructure funds coming its way. So can we use some of that to improve the way we weather the weather? Amazon is under investigation after eight of its workers were killed by tornadoes at an Illinois warehouse, allegedly after managers refused to let the workers go home. And Pfizer says its COVID treatment pill might just be the pandemic game changer we have all been waiting for. Speaking of the pandemic, states moving back to the indoor mask mandate. Is anyone actually going to enforce this thing? We'll hear from a healthcare worker who's fully vaccinated and boosted and is sick with her second case of COVID. And we've heard from a talking dog on the show before. You remember that? Yeah. And now we're going to hear about a talking cat. But when we had the talking dog on, as I recall, he didn't have that much to say. Other than he was hungry. He was hungry. He, he wanted, wanted to go for a walk again. Yeah, Yeah. so let's see if the cat's hungry. The cat's probably going to say, leave me alone. (laughs) We start, though, with rain, drought, infrastructure. Peter Gleck is a climate and water scientist. He's co-founder and president emeritus of the Pacific Institute in Oakland. Peter, thanks for being with us. So every time we have these these bad weather events, as we like to call them, uh, giant potholes form, people collide with one another on the freeways, things fall down. Uh, We have lots of money that we're expecting from the infrastructure bill that was recently passed. Any of that going into fixing some of these problems? Can it fix some of these problems? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm not a talking dog, I guess. Um, oh, thank also, you. <laughs> good to hear that. <laughs> okay. I also, I also like your introduction. How do we weather the weather? Um, let me start by saying, first of all, anybody who's lived in California for the last few years knows that it's wonderful to see water falling from the sky after the massive drought that we're still in to some degree. But again, as you noted at the beginning, we don't want all that water to come at once. It causes floods. It causes damage to our infrastructure. Uh, There is money in the new federal infrastructure bill, quite a bit of it. In fact, more than $80 billion by our estimate at the Pacific Institute for water around the country. Uh, Some of that, maybe quite a bit of it will come to California. And some of that will indeed, if it's spent properly, help us deal with some of these more severe weather events. Uh, It'll help us capture more of this storm water in our groundwater that's been overdrafted. It'll help restore some of our ecosystems. It might help restore part of the LA River, for example, and make it more amenable to dealing with some of these high flows. So optimistically, uh, yes, I hope some of that infrastructure will be put to good use for water. Okay, so I heard in there, if it's spent properly, optimistically, and I hope. Those are all things you said. So um, do we know if there are actual plans for some of the things that you hope happen, or are we still planning to plan something later down the line? Well, so of course, the first step was to get the bill passed, which happened. And it has sort of broad categories for 
uh, water related and sort of any investment in infrastructure. So for example, there's a billion dollars for what's called feasibility studies and construction of water storage, groundwater storage, conveyance, including small scale storage and groundwater projects. And that's what it says. Now that the money's available, they do have to figure out how to parse that out. And some of those details still have to be worked out. Uh, but I'm optimistic that, you know, there are projects on the books that we know are good and that need funding. And the ones that are further along in planning are likely to be the ones that get money. So what are the odds that if we were to have this discussion in, I don't know, 10 years from now, we'd still have the same mess? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to argue that this infrastructure bill will solve all of our water problems. You know, California's had water problems for a long time. The money that's in this infrastructure bill is going to a lot of different places and a lot of different things. The state is also spending a lot of money on water. I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. We're already using water more efficiently in California. We already understand that we have to restore natural ecosystems and some of these urban rivers that have been destroyed in the past. So we are moving in the right direction, but I imagine in 10 years, there will still be challenges that we have to deal with. And uh, my, you know, all I can hope for is that we continue to move as aggressively as possible to solving them. Peter Glick, climate and water scientist, co-founder, president emeritus of the Pacific Institutes up in Oakland. When we come back, something that Amazon probably didn't order from Amazon. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, some of the same Fox News hosts who spent months downplaying the January 6th riots, pleading with the White House for the former president to stop things that day. Before that, California goes back to the indoor mask mandate. Is anyone actually going to force people to wear their masks? Right now, though, the allegations go like this. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in southern Illinois on Friday night working long holiday shifts, processing packages. They ask their supervisors to leave work and get out of arm's way as tornadoes bore down on the area. Well, supervisors allegedly refused to let workers go, and a short time later, tornadoes tore that warehouse apart, killing eight Amazon employees. Amazon is now under federal investigation for that incident. Debbie Verkovitz is a fellow at the Kalmanovitz Institute for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. She formerly served as chief of staff and senior policy advisor at OSHA. Debbie, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me here. So uh, this is the sort of thing that uh, does seem to happen a lot in this country. I was just watching a, a report on television just yesterday out of Kentucky with workers at a, a different place, not an Amazon place, saying that their employer wasn't allowing them to leave despite the tornado warnings. And many of the people in that particular factory got uh, injured and a couple of people, I believe, died as well. This Amazon thing, I suppose it may be surprising because it's such a large company and you think that it's a company that would be a well-oiled machine. Not so? Well, there's a couple of things here. First, people would be surprised about how weak worker safety rights are, especially in non-union establishments, which is what Amazon is, and as well as the candy, the candle factory, and that workers um, really have very limited of any rights um, to refuse work that they believe is hazardous, you know, to their safety or health. So in many ways, they're 
sort of required by the law to choose between their job um, or their livelihood, which is really um, not a position any worker should be in. But also, I think if you look at Amazon, um, which is a huge company with so many resources and how they deal with just traditional worker safety hazards in their big warehouses, um, you see a lot of reports coming out and the data that they've sent in to the government that they have among the highest injury rates of any industry in the United States. And I think that um, is a signal about how they prioritize worker safety. Yeah, we've seen some of the articles and they're actually posting from some of these Amazon message boards, uh, apparently. And some of these workers are talking about, you know, it's been X amount of years and we haven't even had a fire drill here. And I don't know where to go in case there's some sort of emergency and I can't have my phone with me. Um, so what do you do in a, in a case like that? Well, the other thing I want to make you aware is this is not the first time that at least I'm aware of that this has happened in an Amazon warehouse. You know, I live in Maryland and in Baltimore about three or four years ago, a tornado touched down in Baltimore at Amazon facility and workers were killed. And just like this facility, it was subcontractors. And so I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, um, worker safety laws are very weak and um, that's really an issue here. And I think states and cities may want to take a look at making sure that these big warehouses and factories all have emergency response plans in, in place and that workers go through drills and they have a place for people to go because, you know, you're seeing more and more of these very severe weather events. And I think nobody, nobody expects a loved one, a son, a daughter, a husband, a father, um, a wife, you know, a mother, a sister to go to work and not come home because they've been killed on the job. You know, there's an expectation that the boss will take care of you, but there aren't a whole lot of laws sort of requiring that absent you're in a unionized facility. And so it's really something I think workers should demand. I think uh, states and cities need to really sort of step up and step forward and um, put some requirements in place um, because I think federal OSHA right now is very weak and um, I don't see them being able to do anything like that. But in your view, is the reason why uh, municipalities, states, perhaps even the federal government doesn't step up because at the end of the day, when they weigh, uh, in their view, the importance of the employer versus the employee, they tend to come down on the side of the employer? Well, I think what's behind that is the enormous amount of lobbying that industry does so that they don't have to pay that much attention to worker safety or worker rights. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people are against the government and blah, 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 for various reasons. But when you go to work, especially if you're a, a blue collar worker, you know the boss is king. And if you don't have a union that can help um, you raise concerns, you know, you're really an at will to the, to the employer. I know in Illinois that a lot of advocates were trying to pass a bill that was stalled there um, because of a lot of industry lobbying that would prohibit employers from firing workers unless they had just cause. And one, and a just cause would be, you know, if a, a worker really felt like this job was about to kill them or they could suffer serious physical harm, they couldn't be fired. Um, but workers, you know, can be fired really at will in, in almost every workplace. And, you know, just for wearing the wrong shoelaces, and that's a scary place to be. But I think it's really time um, and it's so tragic what happened and so heartbreaking um, that, you know, I think this sort of exposes just how weak worker safety rights are. 
Debbie Berkowitz, fellow at the Kalmanovitz Institute for the Labor and Working Poor at Georgetown University. And when we come back, that Pfizer COVID pill, some pretty good data. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, a little bit later, you've likely heard about that dog that uses audio buttons to talk with its owners. We fe- we did that uh, a few months ago. Yeah, we talked to the talking dog. Well, today we are going to meet uh, the cat, who is also learning to talk, uh, and much more than just going meow. <laughs> right now, though, Pfizer's produced some very hopeful data on its antiviral COVID what treatment it, pill. What, what, what could a cat possibly I do have say? a sneaking suspicion that the cat is way less uh, talkative than the dog is. You think so? Just because I think cats, cats are yeah, just Maybe like this that. is confirming all of our previous beliefs about cats and dogs. But I just want to know, like, what's on a cat's mind? Just feed me and then leave me alone. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt. All right, back to (laughs) Pfizer. Let's end the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Ravi Gupta is an internist and national clinician scholar at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So um, what do you see when it comes to the data with the Pfizer pill that that makes you kind of hopeful here if it does? Hey, thanks for having me. It's nice to be back. Um, So this is exciting news um, uh, about the new drug that Pfizer uh, has studied. Um, And... What I'd like to say, actually, before we uh, get into the data, is just that what we know about the drug thus far is based on a press release only uh, that Pfizer has released, but that the data itself has not yet been uh, reviewed by the FDA, nor has it been peer-reviewed by other scientists. So uh, we have to be a little bit careful about what the results actually show. Um, Having said that, uh, the the press release does show that there is potentially a dramatic effect um, on what we care about, which is to reduce hospitalization and death uh, if you've taken this pill in time. So what kind of patient would get the Pfizer pill? And would that be different, a different patient than might get the Merck pill, which has a competing pill, works differently and has some other issues, which we may have time to get into a little bit later. But, but is there a difference between the patient population for each one of those pills? Yeah, that's a great question. So with, uh, with Pfizer's pill, uh, they studied uh, in the trial a very specific patient population. So the Pfizer pill is, has been studied in individuals who haven't been vaccinated and have never had COVID previously and have, they need to have been given the pill within three to five days of the onset of their symptoms. And they also need to have been, um, they also, so they have to have been tested and been confirmed to have uh, had the infection. Let's say though, you are a vaccinated person, you get a breakthrough case, you go to your doctor because you're symptomatic, he tests you or she tests you and yep, you got COVID. Would this be something that would go to you if you're in a higher risk group and that's, you know, we don't want a bad breakthrough case to happen. There's a slight, slight chance of it. So let's just give you this pill and, and maybe you'll be even better than before. Yeah, that's the question. Um, but I don't think we necessarily know that yet based on the trial that, uh, that Pfizer has uh, released its uh, results on. The other trial, the one that you're talking about, where uh, say there is a vaccinated individual who is at high risk of developing COVID, that's ongoing. We don't necessarily know the final results or even based on press release. 
I alluded to uh, the Merck pill and potential side effects, and the reason I did is because the Merck pill, as I understand it, it fundamentally works differently than the Pfizer one. And there is some concern, is there not, among researchers on the Merck pill because the way it, it interacts with one's DNA? Um, yes. Well, so with the Merck pill, one of the main things that is of concern that the that individuals at the FDA, when they were reviewing the results, what they're also concerned about is potential safety concerns. And so that's part of the reason that, um, that there was some hesitation in terms of authorizing the pill, though it does, it, it did seem to show that there was a 30% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and, and or death. Doc, Dr. Ravi Gupta, internist, National Clinician Scholar, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. So, uh, as we mentioned a little bit later in the show, uh, from the show that once brought you a talking dog, uh, <laughs> we will bring you, we think. We will outdo ourselves. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the most important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. So state officials announced a universal indoor mask mandate effective tomorrow, going through January 15th to curb a possible winter COVID surge. The new mandate aimed at counties that have relatively high rates of unvaccinated people, types of places where mask mandates haven't been strictly enforced in the past. But are officials expecting a possible winter surge to stem from unvaccinated residents or will breakthrough infections comprise a significant portion of these figures? Dr. Kimberly A. Schreiner is the medical director of infection prevention and control at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Doctor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm wondering if, once again, as has been the case throughout this pandemic, I think messaging is the key to a lot of the misunderstanding that Americans have about the pandemic. And here's where I'm getting at with with that question or that observation anyway. Uh, When the vaccines came out and more people were vaccinated, we were told that this is now going to be and is or was a pandemic primarily of the unvaccinated. Well, now we're seeing and we have been seeing breakthrough infections with people who have had the two shot vaccines. We're even now starting to see a few breakthrough infections, certainly overseas with people who have been boosted. So they've had three. So is this really a pandemic only or mostly of the unvaccinated or do we need to refine that message even more? Well, I think what you have to define is what what do our our expectations of what the vaccines will do. And remember that the vaccines are designed to prevent serious illness and hospitalization. And that indeed is what they're doing uh, to a very, very high level for those individuals who've received the vaccinations. Right now, predominant, uh, the, the predominant number of people in the hospital with serious illness and unfortunately who are dying from this disease are unvaccinated. That's what vaccines are really designed to do. Is there a problem now with the emergence of a variant that is perhaps not as susceptible to our vaccines? Yes, and we certainly did expect that with this particular virus. It mutates and becomes uh, more uh, able to uh, evade the the vaccines a little bit, but it's still holding that vaccinated and especially boosted individuals are much, much better protected against uh, COVID than individuals who are unvaccinated. So then we just hope with everything running around, we keep Omicron at a level where, yeah, even if it gets you post-vaccine or post-booster, that it's mild and we can all handle something mild? Yeah, we hope so. And again, this is, uh, this is you know, a very challenging pathogen. 
this is uh, perhaps worse in many respects than the 1918 pandemic because this, this particular virus is so good at mutating and becoming more vicious. Uh, but that the vaccines in conjunction with masking and good social distancing and really just paying attention to things, I think, is going to be what keeps people safe through the holiday season. You know, it's interesting that you just mentioned the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, because uh, I was reading an article earlier today about how many parts of the world people are really asking the question, when is this going to eventually end. And that uh, the 1918 one lasted about a year and a half, as I recall from my readings. Uh, this one does look as if it's going to, well, it has eclipsed it in time, certainly. Are there any signs that it's ending? Well, remember that the 1918 pandemic ended in terms of the number of people that were dying from acute disease at that time. But that virus, the H1N1 influenza virus, has become an endemic virus. We have it very much in our population. Uh, we had a bad outbreak in 2009, if you recall, with H1N1, and that's the same virus. And I think probably to a similar degree, that's what's going to happen with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But it is a different kind of virus. It's a coronavirus. And so it's much more um, uh, able to evade a lot of our techniques. And you know, we are using very sophisticated equipment. We have excellent vaccines against this pathogen. We now have uh, emerging pretty good medications, oral medications. Uh, we are doing really pretty serious mitigation with masking mandates and vaccine mandates and, and lockdowns even in some countries. And yet this thing is still out of control. And that speaks to the power of this particular pandemic and this particular pathogen. Do you hold out much hope for this uh, return of the mask mandate for a month in places where they weren't wearing masks before or for people who weren't really putting them on before? If there's not enforcement and it doesn't seem like there's going to be a great deal of that, um, I don't expect a lot of people to put them back on. Well, I'm always hopeful and I, you know, there's nothing cheaper and easier and perhaps safer than masks. And remember that those of us in healthcare, the N95 masks and the surgical masks that we wore way before we were vaccinated, those prevented us from getting COVID. Uh, so we know that masks work and they are very simple, safe, fashionable. Uh, they're easy to use. We know how to use them. You know, when it rains, you put on a raincoat. So we're in a season now where it's raining virus, put on a mask. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to our next segment because I'm curious what your view is on this. We're going to be talking with a woman who is a healthcare worker who was triple vaxxed uh, and has tested positive for COVID not just once but twice. As a physician, does that surprise you? No, we see that a fair bit. Um, obviously, if she's a healthcare worker and has a lot of exposure to COVID, then that would be an exposure risk because of her occupation, if that's uh, the, the scenario. Uh, we know that some people don't respond to, uh, well to the vaccines. That might be something worth exploring in this particular individual. Uh, but we also know that you know, with Omicron and some of the other variants that the vaccines, a after a bit of time, can begin to uh, not be as robust in protecting people from getting infected. They do protect people from becoming really symptomatic and getting very seriously ill. And again, that's what vaccines are designed to do, to keep people out of the hospital, to let them power through a you know, moderate illness, but come out on the other side healthy and, and not have to worry about it. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. And we will come back and we'll talk to that woman that we were just referring to when In-Depth continues.
This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, as we've discussed many, many times on this program with many, many different experts, regardless of which COVID-19 vaccine you happen to, to get, none of them, none of them is 100% effective against transmission. Today, we will talk with a woman who is an example of that very thing. Yeah, three doses, uh, had the virus last June, has now tested positive again, plus a healthcare worker routinely exposed to unvaccinated patients. Uh, Dr. Lana Wilder, thanks for being with us. Um, how are you feeling today? Oh, uh, actually, I'm feeling much better today. Um, uh, I've been just getting better and better over the last few days, and today I feel significantly better. Thank you for asking. Okay, so do you consider yourself somebody for whom the vaccines worked? Absolutely. There's no question. Tell us why. Um, well, as odd as it may sound, considering I uh, tested positive for um, COVID twice recently, the most recent time, uh, months after my booster shot, which was my third vaccine, the vaccine, in my opinion, did exactly 100% what it was supposed to do. It kept me safe. It kept my symptoms mild. And it kept me out of the hospital. And it kept me from worrying that something terrible would happen. So, I I think it was. I think it's a it's a miraculous thing, and I'm very glad that I had it. Yeah. What was going through <laughs> your head after that second positive test in terms of worry versus? surprise, I mean, the kind of emotional aspect of, I know I'm boosted, but here it is because I'm feeling kind of funny and now I've got my answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was kind of interesting because on, let's see, I, I can't remember exactly which day, but I started to feel a little bit crummy, um, had a little mild cough, but oddly, I just kind of thought I had a migraine. I just wasn't feeling very good. Um, I, I actually went into work because I didn't, in my mind, I couldn't imagine that I was actually sick. Uh, uh, and then later in the afternoon, one of the other doctors said, you know, you don't look so good. You look tired. You should go home. Went home, got in the car, started coughing very badly. And I thought, you know, uh-oh. <laughs> I started to feel like I felt when I had COVID the first time. And so I stopped by the store. I picked up a over-the-counter, uh, you know, behind-the-counter test came home, I still really, I mean, I, you know, even though I thought I felt it, I just still couldn't imagine it would actually be positive. And it showed up positive almost instantaneously. So my first reaction was, oh, poop. I yeah. went and told my husband and my daughter, who's also a healthcare worker, uh, you know, they, they need to put masks on. And, um, yeah, I, I was just kind of in shock for the first day. Then I started to feel worse and worse. So. Um, <clears throat> I went in and uh, had to go in on like the third or fourth day because my oxygen started to go down a little bit. Um, and I had a chest x-ray and I was negative for pneumonia and the doctors just said, you know, go home. And if you don't feel better, they'll, they'll consider the monoclonal antibodies. So went home and started to feel better. <clears throat> it, it is so shock. A little it, bit of shock. Is there anything, if you don't mind me asking uh, a, a, a personal question, is there anything, because people who are listening are going to be concerned to some degree, um, is there anything in your own medical background that would make vaccines less effective for you? Oh, good question. Uh, absolutely not. I'm healthy. Uh, the only other pre-underlying condition I had is I had COVID last year. Um, 
I don't have any lung problems. I don't have any immune system problems. Uh, and, and honestly speaking, I've seen quite a few healthcare workers with breakthrough infections with very similar experiences to mine, vaccinated, double vaccinated with their booster, who come, who were exposed, test positive, either have no or very mild symptoms, and not a single one has ended up with severe, that, and this is my experience, I'm not saying nobody does, but in my experience, I have no colleagues that ended up with, uh, that I know of, that ended up with any kind of severe symptoms or hospitalized or anything like that. So absolutely not. No pre-existing condition. Do you feel mm-hmm. like what you're going through is something that more of us are going to eventually end up going through? Unfortunately, vaccinated, get this, but then, you know, fortunately, get through it fine? Yeah, you know, I can't, I, I, if I could predict, I would, but I, I really can't predict what will happen going forward. I mean, with the new variants, anyone the, the reports that it's more transmissible even than the Delta variant, it's of course concerning, but uh, what I can say is I don't believe that I have seen personally of my patients any vaccinated people in the hospital. That doesn't mean there are none. It just means that of my patient load, all the COVID patients are unvaccinated. So uh, again, I, I don't want to speak for anybody else or to claim that there's no vaccinated patients in the hospital. We know that's not true, but it's overwhelmingly unvaccinated patients who are ending up hospitalized and severely sick. Do you know if if the second bout of COVID that you're experiencing is caused by the Omicron variant? No, I do not, actually. Okay. Uh, are you also, would you consider yourself uh, and other healthcare workers somewhat atypical from the general population in that you're exposed by the definition of what you do on a daily basis to a, a larger viral load, which is important, yes? Well, you know, it's certainly... Certainly, that sounds reasonable. I will say that the first time that I that I was exposed and I and I had COVID, um, which again I also had a mild case. Um, I I do not believe that I actually acquired that in the hospital or in the healthcare setting. And the reason I say that is because my family tested positive about a week before I did, uh, and I believe that one of my family members actually acquired it at the workplace where they're they're. Uh, work was not supportive at, at that time of masking or working from home. Um, they were a little, they were a little bit deniers. And so I believe that I acquired it the first time, not in a healthcare setting. It's certainly feasible and makes sense that people in the healthcare settings would be more often repeatedly exposed. So that is certainly a possibility. But again, I mean, I really, I, I, I certainly wouldn't claim any expertise in that front. So... Dr. Lana Wilder, thanks for talking to us. Glad you're uh, on the mend now for a second time. More in-depth is on the way. We'll have another half an hour coming up. This is KNX In-Depth, daily program that goes beyond the headlines to bring you a fresh take on the most interesting stories of the day. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Here's just a sampling of text messages sent by Fox News personalities to Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff to former President Trump on the 6th of January. This is Trump supporters were rioting on Capitol Hill. Laura Ingram wrote, Mark. The president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. 
he is destroying his legacy. Even the president's own son, Don Jr., texted Meadows, he's got to condemn, meaning his father, he's got to condemn this ASAP. All this revealed as the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection moved to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress. A.B. Stoddard is a columnist and editor at Real Clear Politics. A.B., thanks for being with us. So we read off the text messages. Uh, no mention of any of these on Fox, and I suppose there's probably not going to be any mention of any of these on Fox. No, I don't think so. Um, we've really watched um, Fox News uh, sort of turn their back on the uh, on the January 6th insurrection from, from the earliest hours, really try to explain it away. Uh, defend the rioters and on and on, of course, the former president's role. And so um, I think that they're going to do their best to um, keep on talking about, you know, sort of the Meadows narrative, which is that the 1-6 committee exists to try to undermine former President Trump. So these text messages, and I only read uh, two, uh, there are many more. What do they suggest to you, that that these people, the Fox News hosts, the president's own son, were more aware than they let on the seriousness of what was happening on the 6th? I think what we've learned in the last week from Mark Meadows' text, in addition to a really deeply reported piece profile on Congressman Peter Meyer by Tim Alberta in The Atlantic Magazine, are that Many people around President Trump, his allies in the administration and in, in Congress, were extremely concerned about his state of mind, both the way he refused to respond during the three hours, um, critical hours of the riot when hundreds of people could have been killed, um, and also in the days that followed up to and through uh, the impeachment vote on the 13th of January, that they were calls about the 25th Amendment um, and that um, there was concern everywhere among people who publicly defended this or sort of downplayed it. And so that's that's what those texts continue um, reporting on uh, from, from what I mentioned from The Atlantic, that there were people all through the highest level of the party and allies of, of the president who were extremely concerned about his behavior and his conduct and his um, and, and what he was saying to them. But with so much downplaying happening since, do these even fundamentally change anything or are we just kind of where we were and now we know a little bit more than we did before? I mean, I think if you're looking for sort of the big picture of the political impact of the revelations of the January 6th committee, we won't know that until next year when there are public hearings and we find out who all these members of Congress were that Congresswoman Liz Cheney won't tell us now when she describes their texts and their um, cooperation with Jeffrey Clark um, at the Justice Department to try to um, plan uh, essentially a coup. Uh, There's a lot more to come. That is clear. This committee is going to bite hard. Um, I think what what the Republicans fear is not that this changes anyone who's a fervent Trump supporter's mind, uh, but that it puts Republican candidates in a very hard place with the kind of voters they would like to earn back. Um, the voters who weren't, you know, were maybe Republican or independent who ended up supporting Joe Biden in last year's election, but have turned away from the president and the Democrats. Um, if, if the revelations from this committee are alarming enough, um, it is likely to dampen um, the enthusiasm of those people in, in re- returning power to the Republicans in the Congress who have been holding Trump's bag since January 6th. Do these texts indicate that President Trump at the time was out of control? 
Um, I think they indicate that he refused to respond to their concerns for 187 minutes. And those were that at that time, if the if the Capitol Police had used their weapons, it would have likely turned into a massacre. A.B. Stoddard, columnist, editor at Real Clear Politics. Training a cat to do pretty much anything can be a challenge. How about training a cat to talk? You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. All right, so several months ago, we had Bunny the dog on the show because Bunny was learning to talk. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, refresher course here. It's uh, like a whole bunch of buttons that yeah. the owners laid out on the floor. Yeah. And then Bunny could go by and hit, like, play or treat or walk or mom or dad. That's the way I communicate. <laughs> exactly. Same thing. Just smack the button. Yeah. Food. Works works all the time. Food, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Bunny was part of his larger research project, gauging whether pets can actually be taught to communicate, you know, through language, string sentences together, or if they're just hitting food because they know that button gives them food. So what if you take the dog out of this particular equation and substitute a cat? Can an infamously independent and aloof feline be trained to talk? Does a cat even want to learn can the cat how to be talk. bothered? <laughs> yeah, I can see a cat going, I don't, yeah, I don't want to talk Thanks. to you. Yeah. Kendra Baker is a veterinarian, owner of Billy the Cat, being trained to talk using those audio buttons that Mike just mentioned. Also with us is Leo Trottier, who's a cognitive scientist and CEO of the They Can Talk Research in- Initiative. Both of you, thanks for being uh, with us. Kendra, let's start with, with you since you own the cat. Uh, what does the cat have to say? What's on its mind? <laughs> well, her favorite button is mad, to no one's surprise. What is it? Mad. Mad. So, <laughs> wait, well, hold on. Your cat is angry? Mad. Your cat's mad? What, what is your cat mad about? <laughs> well, just, you know, the slightest inconvenience because she's a feline. Um, no, but in all seriousness, I, um, I've been very shocked at um, the things that Billy seems to want to convey to me. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned, she's an older cat, she's about 13 years old, is how frequently she still wants to play. Hmm. Well, that's nice. So not mad all the time. It's the <laughs> play button, too. Uh-huh. Mad when you won't play. Uh, so did you get the buttons because you thought, hey, I'll give it a shot? Like, how did this get started for you? Because everyone, you know, people have seen Bunny and the dogs on TikTok and stuff. But did you just think, like, maybe I'll try this with the cat? I mean, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I was spending a lot more time at home from the pandemic. And um, i had been following Christina Hunger on Instagram for quite a while. And looked at Billy and said, you know what? I think she could do that. And I got the buttons, and it was a little bit of a pandemic project, and um, it turns out that she can do that. Is there, a, a, like, a happy button that your cat ever pushes? <laughs> Actually, frequently. You know, the mad button's a little bit of a joke, um, but really, Billy is is a super sweet cat and is happy the majority of the time. And she does convey that with her button as well. What did you start with? Well, what was the first button? Well, the button I started with is not one that I would recommend or that anyone who has done it would recommend, and that's a food button. And the reason <laughs> that I did it is because I was not sure that she would be heavy enough to depress the button, but she is. And then I <laughs> you know, instantly solved. regretted giving her a food button. So, <laughs> so uh, Leo, uh, 
How do we know that when animals, whether it's a dog or, in this case, Billy the cat, when they push these buttons, how do we know that they are cognizant, that they're aware of what it is that they're communicating and they just sort of don't kind of, I I don't know, maybe they pick up on the sound uh, that comes out of the button that they push. But do we know if they actually know what they're talking about? Uh, We don't actually know that. Uh, We're trying to figure that out. We've got some uh, research projects underway to try and kind of get a better sense for how uh, like dogs and cats and other non-human animals are using them. So it's it's kind of like a, we don't know. I, I should say though, that we've seen a lot of things that give us um, some cautious optimism. We, we see kind of um, like, a, a, we call them learners. We saw, we see like a dog repeat themselves. So if they say something and the person's in the other room and the person comes back and they say, what do you say? And they, they say like the same two button pair <laughs> in the same order. That, that to me is, you know, like what, that's a, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Mike, Mike and I do the same exactly. thing. Exactly. Just repeat. Oh, all two, the time. Two phrases. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we had the dog on, the dog, you know, could do a couple buttons at a time. How far, and we'll get back to, to Billy the cat, but how far, how good are the dogs? Like in terms of what kind of thing they can form that's just not food or walk. We've seen dogs pressing sequences, uh, like a large variety of them. So uh, perhaps one of the most famous and exciting ones was uh, uh, bunnies seem to be uh, insistently pressing things like night, talk, sleep. And we were puzzled, perplexed as to what that meant. And uh, we hypothesized maybe she's talking about dreaming. Maybe we don't know. Uh, So uh, we introduced a dream button. And then Alexis asked her dog, you know, what dream? And and then Bunny said, "Stranger animal." So, I mean, who knows? But that I mean, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> they may need therapy. I know. <laughs> uh, is have you tried having uh, a cat using the buttons talk to a dog using the buttons? Can they communicate they speak the same language? <laughs> yeah, I mean, can they talk to one another? Uh, we we have not seen that. I've not seen that, but it would be fascinating if we did. We have seen um, seemingly uh, dogs um, talk, it seems, on behalf of another dog. So if one dog can't use the buttons and needs to go out, we, we can see a, the dog who does know how to use the buttons might press outside. <laughs> you mean the dog's like, a, like they, a press agent? <laughs> exactly. Publicist. Did you, really? <laughs> did you think a cat was going to be able to do this? Or because you made them for dogs and you're looking at dogs, you're like, I, I'm not sure. I was I was a little pessimistic. I mean, uh, dogs, uh, cats are famously aloof. Dogs, you know, always it seems like want to learn the rules of whatever situation that they're in. And so, um, you know, I I didn't really think the cats would have the same level of motivation. They also there are fewer things kind of that you that they're obviously interested in on a consistent basis, which means <laughs> that there's fewer things to kind of grab onto. But uh, you know, I was I was honestly extremely surprised. Kendra, do you want your cat to talk to you? You know, if you had asked childhood Kendra, like she definitely would have said yes. Um, depending on what Billy says to me, it changes day to day. You know, when she insults my music taste, I dislike it. So, much. <laughs> so you play a song and she hits mad and then you're like, and then you know that she thanks for the music wreck. This is great. Yeah. Um, you know, if Lin-Manuel Miranda is listening right now, she unfortunately really doesn't like Hamilton. <laughs> well, everyone's a critic. Everyone's a critic. <laughs> <laughs> How many buttons does she have? She is at 51 right now. Wow, that's a lot of words. Okay. 
So, Leo, where, where does this all ultimately lead? I mean, do do we all want to have pets that we can communicate <laughs> with or, or, or what? I mean, I, I think throughout history, mythology, right, we've had communication with animals has been up there with, you know, being able to fly or be able being able to be invisible. So, I mean, if we can achieve this, uh, I think it could change an enormous amount. But again, we're, this is all speculation at this point. Uh, it could be that they're just pressing pressing buttons randomly. But uh, at this point, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty interesting. Well, we'll have you back when you keep working on it. Uh, Leo Trottier, cognitive scientist, CEO of They Can Talk, the research initiative. Kendra Baker, veterinarian, has Billy the cat. It's got all those buttons. But but the cat's always mad. Well, sometimes it's happy. He wants to play. Yeah, but doesn't like Hamilton. <laughs> Who doesn't like Hamilton? <laughs> Likes cats. <laughs> Ooh. All right. Uh, more in depth <laughs> tomorrow, 1 p.m.